it would be a a great help to me if you would keep the passage open uh, in front of you in Luke 23 and if you would also please have the bulletin open in front of you because you'll find in there an outline of where we're going to be going in the next few minutes. Um, Now I know one or two of you battle with hearing. If at any point you can't hear me, just raise your hand. Alice will leap forward and adjust the sound. But to begin with, I'm going to pray. So won't you you bow with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When the new millennium began, the National Gallery in London decided that the most appropriate way to uh, celebrate the occasion was to have an exhibition of paintings uh, featuring images of Jesus Christ. Uh, One of the paintings on display was by the Spanish painter Salvador Dali, Uh, featuring Christ on the cross. I wonder whether we can have that on the screen. There it is. It's a rather remarkable painting, isn't it? Um, Dali painted it in 1951, and when it first appeared, art critics were very negative about it. But within the first couple of months, 50,000 people of all types and all races, queued to see it. An exceptional number for those days. And one press report at the time said this, Men entering the room where the picture is hung instinctively take off their hats. Crowds of chattering, high-spirited school children are hushed into awed silence when they see it. Now that was uh, nearly 70 years ago, but that sense of awe and wonder before the cross is actually typical of the way that millions have responded to the cross in every generation and in every culture. It's the same awe and wonder that have inspired all the great hymn writers and all the great preachers to encourage Christians to keep the cross right at the very centre of our faith. So, for example, Spurgeon said, the cross is the centre of our religion. Uh, Campbell Morgan of Westminster Chapel, I think he hit the nail on the head when he wrote, every living experience of Christianity begins at the cross. And for nearly 300 years now, Isaac Watts has been urging Christians to survey the wondrous cross. In other words, Isaac Watts wants us to meditate on the cross and to keep meditating on it. But I wonder if we're really doing that. I wonder if the cross of Jesus really is at the centre of our lives. I've got no doubt that 
all of us in this building uh, this morning think about the cross from time to time. But I wonder if the cross really is motivating the priorities in our daily lives and shaping the way that we relate to one another. Now fortunately we don't have to guess the answer to that question because the New Testament provides one very simple test. Because in his first letter, the Apostle John says this, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So how can we tell whether the cross really is at the centre of our lives? Well, by asking ourselves whether we're the kind of people who normally and willingly lay down our lives for other Christians. Are we in the habit of putting the interests of other people before our own? Now, I don't know for one moment how you would answer that question, but um, I, for one, have a long way to go in that department. And because I suspect I'm not alone, I want to invite you to come with me once again to the foot of the cross this morning and see what was really going on. What is the message of the cross? What is it about the cross that transforms some people and yet leaves other people totally unmoved? Well, in this passage, Luke gives us a word picture. It is a painting, not in oil, but in words, of the message of the cross, which is, of course, the message of Christianity. The message comes into sharpest focus in verses 32 to 43. And so, although the reading was a bit longer than that, we're going to spend most of our time in those 12 verses. And we're going to contemplate Luke's picture from two perspectives. First, we're going to gaze at the man on the cross. And then we're going to consider the world at his feet. So firstly then, the man on the cross. Now, before we look at what Luke actually does say about Jesus, we can't help noticing what he leaves out. Um, As the passage was being read, I wonder if you picked up that there's no mention of the excruciating physical pain that Jesus must have suffered. Now that I think is really rather odd, isn't it? Uh, A few years ago, the American Medical Association published a report on the agonies of crucifixion, complete with anatomical illustrations. It's actually far too gruesome for me to read out to you in church this morning. But their conclusion was that death by crucifixion was, in every sense of the word, excruciating. 
Now that is an up-to-date professional medical opinion. Death on the cross was excruciatingly painful. Now here's the thing. Luke was a doctor. So of all the Gospel writers, he was the one best qualified to comment on the physical aspect of Christ's suffering. And yet, however terrible the physical suffering of Jesus was, Luke says not one single word about it. Now, does that strike you as rather odd? It should do. It can only mean, can't it, that as far as Luke was concerned, the real message of the cross lies somewhere else. So where does Luke want you and I to focus our attention Well, in our passage, the first thing to notice is that Jesus was crucified as a criminal. Come with me to verse 32. Verse 32 says, Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with Jesus to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, There they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Now can you see that to a casual bystander, Jesus looks guilty. If you and I had been there and all we had was the evidence of our eyes, we would have said, there are three criminals being executed and all three are guilty. Now that might surprise you, but actually it shouldn't because the careful Bible reader will remember that 700 years before these events the prophet Isaiah had said that Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah was saying that Jesus would be treated as somebody who had broken the law of God. And what clearer way to number Jesus with the transgressors than to execute him in between two criminals. And yet, in the rest of this chapter, Luke goes to extraordinary lengths to show us that the truth about Jesus is exactly the opposite. In fact, as Jesus goes to the cross... Luke wants us to be sure of two things about Jesus that point in a completely different direction. First, he wants us to be absolutely certain of his innocence. No less than six times in the chapter, different people say that Jesus did not deserve to die. The first is Pilate in verse 4. Now, we saw this last week, but in case you weren't with us, let me remind you that Pilate was the Roman governor. He is the supreme legal authority in the country. So, his career depends on him upholding justice. He interviews Jesus at great length. What's his verdict? Well, it's recorded for us three times, so that must be important, mustn't it? In verse 4... Pilate says, I find no basis for a charge against this man. He says almost the same thing in verse 14. 
But most striking of all, in verse 22, do please put your nose on verse 22, Pilate says, I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Now that's pretty clear, isn't it? The ruling of the Minister of Justice is that Jesus is innocent. And according to verse 15, King Herod said the same. But what about everybody else? Well, right at the other end of the social scale, in verse 41, one of the criminals on the cross next to Jesus gives us his verdict. Now remember, will you, that this man knows that death is only a few hours away, so he's got nothing whatsoever to gain by telling a lie. And yet, in verse 41, almost with his last gasp, he turns to his friend and he says, We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then, of course, there's the Roman centurion, and we meet him in verse 47. He was the man in charge of the execution squad. He was a hardened soldier. He would have executed many, many people in this way. And when Jesus dies, I think we would expect him to be congratulating himself on another job well done. But what actually happened? Well, in verse 47, Luke tells us that for the first time in his life, this pagan soldier praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. And the word righteous there in the original means quite literally, not guilty. So in his opinion, Jesus was a not guilty man. So we've heard from the government, we've heard from a convicted criminal, and we've heard from a soldier. But what about the religious establishment? Was there perhaps a man of integrity in the religious establishment who could give a just verdict on Jesus? Well, yes, there was. Because in verse 50, we meet Joseph of Arimathea. Luke tells us that he was a member of the Jewish ruling council and that he was a good and upright man. He says that because, of course, those two things don't always go together. But Joseph was known as a man of integrity. That means you couldn't buy his vote and you couldn't persuade him to go against his conscience. And in verse 51, we're told that Joseph had not consented to the council's decision to crucify Jesus. So there you have it. Six crystal clear statements from people at every level of society, from people who were there and who knew what they were talking about, that Jesus did not deserve to die. Jesus was perfectly innocent and yet he was executed as a criminal. So we have to ask, don't we, 
Whose guilt was he bearing? Well, Isaiah famously says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And so this morning as you gaze at Christ on the cross, I want you to really take it to heart that Jesus was perfectly innocent. And the only reason Jesus was there was to bear your guilt and mine. But secondly, Luke also wants us to see that Jesus was perfectly obedient. Now, in preparing this message, I discovered something that I'd never really noticed before. You see, not long after we started our journey through the Gospel of Luke, six and a half years ago, we looked at the temptation of Jesus in the desert in Luke chapter 4. And uh, we saw there, didn't we, that the devil began each of his temptations by saying, if you are the Son of God, do X, Y, Z. In other words, each of those temptations was an attack on Jesus' identity. And specifically, what the devil was trying to do was to tempt the Son of God to disobey the word of God. Because, of course, if he succeeded, then Jesus would be no better than Adam. He would be no better than you and me. And if the devil could do that, well, Jesus would be totally disqualified to be our saviour. Now, as we know, the devil's first attempt in the desert was a miserable failure. But after that ordeal, Luke's comment was that the devil left Jesus until an opportune time. Now that's a very important phrase. It means the devil hadn't given up. He was going to wait for a better opportunity to tempt Jesus to disobey the Father. And as Jesus hangs on the cross in our passage this morning, the devil seizes his chance with exactly the same temptation as before. We find it on the lips of three different groups of people. They all want Jesus to prove his identity not by saving others, but by saving himself. Now notice this, this is fascinating. So in verse 35, one group is saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Then another group in verse 37 are taunting him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And the criminal in verse 39 shouts, Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, the voices, of course, are all human voices. But can you hear who is actually behind those suggestions? Can you hear the echo 
of those temptations in the desert. You see, at this point, the the pressure on Jesus to find another way must have been intense. I mean, just think about it. You know, Jesus is God's son. He created the whole universe. Of course he had the power to save himself. And he'd already sacrificed so much, hadn't he? His glory with the Father, uh, his dignity as a human being, his reputation, his friends, and as he hung naked on the cross, even his clothes. The only thing he has left at this point is his physical life. And yet, even in this darkest moment, Jesus will not shrink from doing his Father's will. Right to the very end, Jesus was perfectly obedient, even to the most shameful and humiliating death imaginable. Now here's the point. The only reason that Jesus can save you and me today is because he didn't save himself then. That's why the cross is at the very heart of the Christian faith. George Whitfield was one of the greatest preachers since the days of the New Testament. And he always went to extraordinary lengths to get his audiences to focus on the cross. And one of his favourite phrases, you find this repeated a number of times in his sermons, was the phrase, forget not a bleeding God. It's a good phrase, that, isn't it? Forget not a bleeding God. I think we need to hear that again today, don't we? You see, many people want to move on from the cross to other things, to apparently more elevated spiritual experiences, or to good causes. Now, those things are important, don't get me wrong, But friends, they are secondary. And uh, if we pursue those secondary causes, those good causes, and in doing that we forget the man on the cross, those good causes are utterly meaningless. So, especially during this Easter week, let's keep our eyes firmly fixed on the man on the cross. But now let's move on and notice, secondly, the world at his feet. Now, in uh, Luke's marvellous word picture, we find lots of different people gathered round the cross. And by recording their different reactions, it's as if Luke is saying to us, well, tell me, where do you find yourself at the foot of the cross? The first group is there in verse 35, where we see that the people stood watching. Apparently the the crowd don't really know what to make of it all. They appear to be neutral. But can I say that history shows that standing with the crowd is nearly always deadly for the soul. Uh, A couple of years ago, a new report was published highlighting the involvement of ordinary men and women 
in the Holocaust in Nazi Germany. When the research team began their studies, uh, they expected to confirm the existence of 7,000 Nazi camps and ghettos in Europe based on post-war estimates. But by the time they had finished their research, they discovered that there weren't just 7,000, there were 42,000. The head of the research team said the findings left no doubt in his mind that many ordinary German citizens must have known about these camps. But at the time, nearly everybody said, we don't know what's happening. Listen to the conclusion of their report. Quote, In one of the most enlightened, intellectually accomplished, progressive societies in the world, you had widespread corruption on a level that staggers the mind. End quote. Now I think that that's a great reminder, isn't it, that in things that really matter... The crowd is a dangerous place to stand. And that's because the crowd has a terrifying ability to override our moral perception. And so, my dear friend, when it comes to the cross of Jesus Christ, wherever you choose to stand, please don't stand with the crowd. Then in front of the crowd... We see the rulers, don't we, in verse 35. And uh, as they watch Jesus on the cross, what are they doing? They're sneering. Millions of people react like that today and will do during Easter week. And we saw, didn't we, last week that these men were motivated entirely by self-interest. Jesus was a threat to their authority, so he had to be silenced. And of course we see exactly the same thing today, don't we, in countries that are closed to Christianity. But what about us? I mean, aren't there times when we see Jesus as a threat to our independence, to the way that we want to live our lives? I mean, we might enjoy the fellowship on uh, Sunday morning at church, but what about the claims that Jesus makes on our lives? on our time, on our gifts, on our money, on our lifestyle. And when we resist his rule in our lives, are we honestly any better than the rulers sneering in verse 35? Then we notice the soldiers, don't we, mocking Jesus in verse 36. What are they doing? Well, they're offering Jesus wine vinegar, not out of kindness, no, no, simply to prolong his suffering. So they are reacting to the cross with vicious cynicism and complete disdain. They have no real convictions about anything, these men. And there's a great irony here, isn't there? Because the soldiers think that they're in total control of the situation and that Jesus is weak and powerless up there on the cross. But the truth, of course, is exactly the opposite. And that's why Luke 
chooses this particular moment to draw our eyes away from these groups of people in order to focus on just two individuals either side of Jesus. Why does he do that? Well, it's because more than anything else, the message of the cross is a message for individuals. You see, on the last day, you and I are not going to stand before Almighty God in a group. No, no, we will stand there one at a time. And God will ask just one question. He will say, what did you do with my son? So what are we meant to learn from these two individuals? Well, the first criminal in verse 39 hurled insults at Jesus. And then, like so many people today, he's ready to blame anybody and everybody for his situation. Everybody, that is, except himself. Do you know people like that? And he demands that Christ should save him. Of course, the salvation that he has in mind is purely physical. He simply wants to be off the cross, doesn't he? He's rather like the person who asks God to deliver them from some terrible illness, and when God, in his mercy, grants their request, they immediately forget all about him. Notice, this man shows no repentance, no humility before Christ, no desire to be right with God, and significantly, we never hear of him again. But the second man couldn't be more different. In fact, the way that he responds to Jesus on the cross is the pattern for us. He models the response that God is looking for from men and women today. Please notice three distinct steps. First, this man separated with his past. Come with me to verse 40. Can you see verse 40? Luke tells us that when this man heard the insults of the other criminal, he rebuked him. Now that's very interesting because Matthew in his Gospel tells us that to begin with both criminals were hurling their insults at Jesus. But in those agonising few hours on the cross something has happened to this man. His eyes have been opened. He suddenly realises that he's standing on the edge of eternity and he sees that he would be a complete fool to continue insulting Christ. And although the rulers and the soldiers and even his friend are sneering and mocking the Lord, this man opens his mouth and he separates himself from all that. Second, this man recognised his own guilt before Almighty God. You see, every Jew, criminal or not, knew that to be on a cross was not just to be under human justice, no, no, it was to be under God's curse. 
And that's because of a very important passage in Deuteronomy. You don't need to turn to it, but you might like to jot it down. It's Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22 and following. Let me read it to you. If a man guilty of a capital offence is put to death and his body is hung on a tree, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. So when this man, you see, said to his friend, don't you fear God, what he's actually saying is, I know that I deserve not only to be judged for what I've done, but also to be under the righteous condemnation of Almighty God. Now friends, that is the situation of all unbelievers without exception. God says that all unbelievers are under his righteous condemnation even now while they live. And our only hope of rescue is if God first shines his light into our hearts to show us what we're really like so that we will cling to Christ throughout the rest of our lives. Thirdly, this man cried out to the Saviour, didn't he? Look at verse 42, quite beautiful words. He says very simply, Jesus, remember me. Isn't that marvellous? I mean, there's no time for him to be baptised. There's no time for him to go on Christianity explored. There's no opportunity for him to prove his faith by his good works. And he offers no excuses for his past life. Just, Jesus, remember me. In fact, that prayer is evidence of an extraordinary miracle. Because this man puts everything on the shoulders of the dying Jesus. He stakes everything on it. And that can only mean, can't it, that his mind and heart have been totally changed. He wouldn't do it otherwise. And what Jesus gives to this man in verse 43 is what Jesus gives to everyone who puts their lives entirely on his shoulders. What did Jesus give him? This is very important, you know, because it's actually the hope of every Christian First of all, Jesus gave him something certain. I say that because the first words that Jesus speaks in verse 43 are the words, I tell you the truth. That actually is a favourite phrase that Jesus uses in the Gospels and he only ever uses it when he's making a solemn promise. So here in verse 43 we have something that comes with the full authority of heaven. You can stake your whole life on it. Second, Jesus gave him something immediate. Because what Jesus was giving to this man started today. 
So there was going to be no period of probation. Um, This man's soul, when he died, wasn't going to be in cold storage or in purgatory until the general resurrection. No, no, the moment he died, this man experienced the promise. And third, Jesus gave him something personal. I think this is very beautiful. I mean, if Jesus had said, quite simply, today you will be in paradise, that would have been marvellous comfort enough, wouldn't it? But Jesus says something far, far better. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, friends, that is the promise right at the heart of the cross. Bishop J.C. Ryle, who's a favourite of mine, summarises the promise in verse 43 like this. He says this, quote, That word today tells us that the very moment a believer dies, his soul is in happiness and in safekeeping. His full redemption is not yet come, His perfect bliss will not begin until the resurrection morning, but there is no mysterious delay, no season of suspense, no purgatory between his death and a state of reward. In the day that he breathes his last, he goes to paradise. In the hour that he departs, He is with Christ. So, these two men picture the situation facing every single person in this room this morning. Because like them, we all face the certainty of death. Like them, we see Jesus, the Son of God, as he hangs on the cross. And like them, we have a decision to make. Because one of them insulted Jesus, and he perished, and we never hear of him again. The other cried out, Jesus, remember me and he received the most wonderful promise from Christ. I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Can I ask, which one of these men best describes you? Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, thank you for the cross. Please open our eyes this morning to see that the cross is our only hope, the only place where wrath and mercy meet, the only place where guilty sinners can be set free. 
Help us to respond simply, sincerely, believingly that the promise Jesus gives here may be true for each one of us. And we ask it for your name's sake.